0: Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Business Radio, and this is the podcast, Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honoured to have as my special guest, Coral Andrews, who is an independent media professional with a lengthy list of interests in the Canadian music scene, writing, editing, blogging, social media, interviewing, and radio broadcast at Coral FM, as well as the author of the book, The Back Door, about a very special music venue in Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, It's a bit of a different show today, so I look forward to hearing about Coral's many experiences in the Canadian music scene over several decades. So thanks for joining me today, Coral. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Good. Well, thanks so much. I'm just waking up here on the West Coast. So uh, (laughs) you've been up for a few hours, I'm sure. You you did a radio show this morning, you said?
1: Yeah, I have a Saturday morning show called Coral Rocks on 98.5 CKWR, and then I have my by show Monday to Friday, 2 to 6, the afternoon drive. So yeah, nice. I'm used to getting up early on Saturday mornings.
0: <laughs> good for you. And what's what's the content of that show?
1: Uh, Coral Rocks. It's um, it's very eclectic. So yeah. we have the, um, the Kitchener Blues Festival happening, and the official lineup is announced tonight. So this morning I interviewed the president of the Blues Festival, and then a good pal of mine dropped by who's a veteran guitarist, Um, Mike McDonald who was in Toronto and now he's here doing stuff Uh, so it was an interesting show this morning and then um, we have a a venue in town called the Registry Theatre and uh, they have a folk weekend going on and Stephen Fearing is playing there tomorrow night so uh, it was a very eclectic show this morning that's for sure
0: yeah well, that seems to be your whole sort of experience is 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 a kind of all over the place. I mean that in a good way, but just eclectic and and varied so your history you you're from the Kitchener area is that right? You were born and raised there or did you just end up being there?
1: I was born in Hamilton okay on, on the mountain, but my dad's uh, was an engine like as an engineer, so we moved a lot uh we moved around a lot when I was a kid. And uh, okay. we ended up in Kitchener, our first house, and then my dad was transferred over to Belfast in the '60s.
0: Uh ah, wow.
1: so we we're living in um, in England, Belfast for a couple of years as well. And then we came back to Kitchener, and I've been here ever since. This is my home base. Okay.
0: Well, I was born in Guelph, so just down the street from uh, Hamilton, and yeah. of course Kitchener too. So. Um, and then Kitchener, obviously, you brought it up many times. What well, That was the city that was called Berlin before the Second World War. Is that correct? Yes. So I remember my trivia <laughs> <It's> for our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, very cool. And, and uh, so it's a, it was an exciting time for music. I mean, growing up in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, I mean, that was the the bomb, right? Being a musician or being around the music scene. My old manager always used to say, everybody wants to have a little part of the the music biz and be part of the music scene and so i was going to ask you you, you have an obvious love for the canadian music and in, in the art scene too but uh, what what drew you to that
1: i don't know i guess my parents um you know when i was a kid i was listening to soundtracks uh, yeah. you know broadway musical soundtracks things like that and uh, comedy a lot of comedy british comedy like beyond the fringe mm. and round the horn on BBC and things like that. And I just, my grandfather was um, a producer of vaudeville. And so I think kind of runs in a family. So I've always been attracted to the arts since I was five years old.
0: Yeah. Very neat. And, and again, very broad. And so I have a list here of some of the magazines and the publications you've written for Saturday night and take one and graffiti and the new quarterly and can play performing arts and entertainment. So again, it's broader than just music. You were yes. you're interested in all of the arts, but, but I guess primarily music, would you say, or?
1: or um, your focus? I'd say it's a, a cross between the two. Actually. Um, yeah. I love music, but I also love theater. Uh, anything mm-hmm. that's going on in the theater. So I've been, I think I've been reviewing shows at the Stratford festival for over 30 years. Wow. Uh, and then all the local theater as well regional theater too. And the same goes for music. Like I'm, you know, always been championing local artists and in regional, yeah. national and every once in a while I get to interview international music artists. So it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, well that's cool. And and the uh, connection between acting and singing. I mean, some of my good friends that are singers are also actors and dancers. And have done lots of that, and floated in and out of musical theater, and and even TV. My friend Patricia Dahl- Dahlquist, who who had a big hit in the seventies. I mean, she was on the X Files as an actress, right? And yet, still taught the singing classes at night that we played for her, and and those kinds of things. So it was very mixed. Like it, artists are very artistic, as as you would say. Yes, <laughs> doing all those things. So, well, I guess you're kind of a Canadian music historian now too, right? Mm.
1: So they tell me, I don't know, I guess I just have a, I'm just driven. I have a passion for music. So I'm like a little sponge. And if I have musicians around me that are older, um, I love listening to their stories. You know, I'm Hmm. always interested in hearing stories from musicians in every, any genre of music, actually.
0: Well, the interesting thing too is I guess when when you're young, you get involved and then we'll we'll talk about your book too, but uh, you get involved in the music scene and then you learn to certain people, you learn things about them and then you get some experiences. And then after a few decades, you start thinking, wait a second, I've been sort of there for a lot of this. And I've talked to a lot of these people and I'm kind of just by acclamation, you're just a historian about those things because you know a lot about it.
1: Well, my brother, my, I'm an older brother, Phil, and he was a, he's a musician. So you know, when I was 13, he was trying to you know learn um, riffs to Jeff Beck and Led Zeppelin and all this kind of stuff. Right. So. And I'd be listening to this stuff, you know, 30 times a day, the same song as he was trying to learn the guitar. So really, it's kind of ingrained in me in a way. It's all his yeah, fault. That would, I blame him.
0: That would have been me. That's what I was like, too, listening to the record. So did you ever try to play? Did you play anything?
1: I have a guitar and I play chords. Hmm. Um, I play bass ukulele, again, chords. Chords. But uh yeah. I have a guitar sitting in the corner that needs some uh and needs some attention. I haven't had a chance to get back to it. But yeah, I I wish I could play. I I really envy musicians that could, anybody can play an instrument. But I you know, I'll sit and play I'll I'll sit and play some chords sometimes, but I I okay. I'm not you know, I would call myself yeah. a musician by any stretch of the imagination. Well, okay. My God.
0: Everybody gives it a shot though. And and the fact that you love music and you're involved in the scene in in a pretty substantial way, I must say, like I looked at some of the, the interviews that you've done and, and, uh, listened to some of the, the podcasts that you've done. And now you're on the, on the other side of the microphone for this one, but you've certainly interviewed lots of people. And I see on there, you interviewed Cynthia Lennon. Yes. How did that happened.
1: Um, that was 1995 at Beetle-rama, just outside of Toronto. So a friend of mine, a promoter, Peter Jacobs, English guy, um, he brought in Cynthia Lennon and Pauline Sutcliffe, who is Stuart Sutcliffe's sister, and Louise Harrison, George Harrison's sister, yeah. and Pete Best, the drummer, and Alan Williams, the Beatles' first manager, and Cynthia Lennon. So it was basically people outside of the Beatles And I was writing for a magazine called chaos back then. And I did a, I had to do a panel discussion with this bunch and I thought, Oh my God, what am I going to do here? So I thought, well, I worked at a a video store and I had just seen the movie backbeat. So that prompted a lot of discussion, basically, you know, all the, all the stuff of the movie and the way John Lennon was portrayed and all this kind of stuff. It was really interesting I have to say and then later on uh later on during the or later on that day I met up with Cynthia Lennon and we had we had a wee chat. So it was you know yeah. it was great. It was uh, lovely to cool. talk to her. She's really nice. Was very nice, yeah, well, i should say.
0: Interesting cuz uh, cuz John Lennon like you hear lots of different things about him. Some people are, you know, flattering about him, other people, you know, said he's a good musician but not a great person and I was curious as to what her take on that was or if she said anything that was indicative of that?
1: Um, She, you know, she said, well, she was a, he was on the other side of the tracks and she was in art school and uh, he didn't think he could go out with her. He thought, well, she's, you know, probably beyond my class, but uh, she really liked him because he was very witty and, you know, uh, very funny. And um, I mean, they, they met when they were, you know, hanging around an art class and Stuart Sutcliffe was with them as well. And she said, you know, when, when Yoko showed up, it was like she kind of inserted herself in the middle of the two of them. And she told oh, me in the movie, Imagine, yeah. she goes, when I get left behind, you know, when the train kind of takes off and they're all going to the Maharishi Yogi, she goes, and oh, no, I missed the bloody train. That's so indicative of what happened. You know, I missed, yeah. like he took off and I was left behind. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, that that must have been kind of neat for you to to have a connection to the Beatles of all of all bands. Or you know, they're the iconic. I mean, if you're going to pick a, a number one band of all time, I don't know what your choice would be, but I mean, they'd certainly be in the conversation.
1: I'm a huge Beatles fan. Like you, in my front room, I have John Lennon on one wall and a, a lithograph of John Lennon walking on the water that um Alan Williams gave me. Actually, okay, he sold it to me for twenty bucks. And then wow. I was down in New York and I saw it for 80 bucks. And I thought, oh boy. Yeah.
0: Well, cool. And then you got to interview Eric Burden as well from The Animals. Who oh was, yeah, huge
1: course. fan of The Animals too.
0: And how was that?
1: Um, I told him, I said, we were in Belfast. We used to play, or I told his wife, who was kind of his publicist. I, I, I said, well, we used to listen to, we got to get out of this place. Because Belfast drove us nuts. And uh, he he thought that was really funny because we used to watch him on Top of the Pops and Ready, Steady, Go and all this stuff. And he liked the fact that I had a kind of an English connection from the 60s. So Mm. we had a great chat. He was here at the Blues Festival. And uh, I can't remember what year that was, but uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, when he told me about, you know, doing Ready, Steady, Go and Thank Your Lucky Stars. I think it was Ready, Steady, Go. There was a bar down the street. So they would just call him and say, "Okay, you're up. And then he said, when you were doing Top of the Pop, sometimes there were guys behind you, and they would try and make you laugh. So yeah. he, he is a lot of fun. I love him. He's a great singer. And that That's was a good. fun well,
0: interview. Well, it's neat because, like I said, you're you you know you're just interested in the music scene, and then you're talking to these guys that are iconic music guys that have been around for many years and, and we kind of grew up with. And you're sitting yeah. there talking to them going, okay, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so just some other ones that, that stuck up, uh, that, uh, stood out to me. You talked to Greg Keeler from blue rodeo. I just talked to, to Basil Donovan a couple of weeks ago, actually for mine. And he was an interesting guy to talk to. And how was, how was Greg? Did you enjoy the blue rodeo conversation? Yeah,
1: Greg was a lot of fun because, um, he was part of the, the Garth Hudson, um, uh, celebration of, uh, the band. So like, that's why I was that. talking to him and, um, uh, garth hudson had just put out a 10th anniversary edition of this um, or mm. not garth but the his record company and so greg and i were talking about that plus he did the music for a canadian music with paul gross it was a western i can't mm. remember the name of it right now but okay. um, he did the score for that and we had a great time ch- uh, chatting about that so a nice guy for sure yeah.
0: oh good yeah, I enjoy it. They're, they're Well, Basil, too, is very down to earth. I mean, those guys are not pretentious, really, at all, that I can see.
1: No, definitely not. So,
0: and then Alan Doyle, I guess you you spoke with him as well from Great Big Sea. And, and, you know, he's an East Coaster, so he's there's no pretension there. Just a regular dude, right?
1: Yeah, he was a lot of fun, too.
0: Well, good. Well, now I wanted to ask you about a few of those. And then uh, Bernie Finkelstein, who uh, founded True North Records, I guess he, he's a pretty much a Canadian icon himself.
1: Yeah, and, uh, that was interesting too. You know, he's talking a lot about Bruce Coburn and Back in the Day and True North Records. And uh, so that was – I was a little nervous for that interview because he's so well-known. And yeah. uh, when I interview people like that, I just want to make sure that I have enough research together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <that's
1: it. laughs> like I have an interview coming up with Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. He's going to be here in Ontario playing somewhere. And I thought, well, I've got to, I mean, I've been listening to the Moody Blues since I was a kid, but I thought I've got to get, I've got to really beef up on my research because I'm, I'm sure like you, you want to make the, when you're doing an interview with somebody, you want to make it interesting for them as well.
0: Yeah. I try to ask questions they haven't been asked before as much in as much as I can. I mean, there's standard ones that you have to ask, but the main thing is I don't want to put my foot in it. You know, if you don't know something or if you ask a what, what ends up being a dumb question or a question from ignorance that you're, that that's what always, you know, I'm concerned about. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, oops, I
1: How should have known that. Done that? Oh man.
0: Yes. Well, that's okay. I mean, some people are very forgiving, so it's nice. And, and you know, you're trying to ask something that they haven't been asked a hundred times before. So This is true. Um, yeah. So any other interesting uh, people that you've talked to? Uh,
1: Graham Chapman from Monty Python. That was a yeah. good one. <laughs>
0: cool. Yeah.
1: yeah he was very interesting. Sorry?
0: Yeah. That must have been different. Graham Chapman... Uh, now was he was he on the TV series too? Because a lot of younger people don't realize like Monty Python had a, a weekly I guess it was weekly television show too, right?
1: Yes, I mean Graham goes back. There was a he and John Cleese were writing together for a movie called The Magic Christian um, with okay. Peter Sellers way back when. So he was a screenwriter. Yep. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about you know Monty Python the series. We talked about the movies. All the yeah. movies he was in, and all the you know processes that he was going through when he was doing these movies.
0: Cool. That's uh, that's kind of a neat interview with the with the Monty Python guys. And again, it ties right into your eclectic sort of roots and the broad tastes, like like your wide range of multi genre artists and alternative and retro and blues and upcoming artists and visual artists. I mean, you you basically run the whole gamut.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not sure why. I think I'm just curious to know as much about the arts as I can,
0: and that, well, and, and again, it, it it is all tied together in a certain way, and if you can sort of knit it all together and and what I like about it is you're not exclusionary, so you're not saying, well i'm I'm an alternative art, you know I'm interested in alternative or I'm interested in in one aspect of the arts, you're kind of interested in all of it, and you can have this golden thread that kind of brings it all together, which is which is cool.
1: That's true. I I find the more interviews I do, I don't know if you find this too, I bet you do, that everything's connected. Everybody seems to know everybody else one way or another. Yeah, the more interviews I do, the more I find that, which I find absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, it's great. And and people are are interconnected in the sense that we get to artists you know i mean to me like when i go out and play and sing and do gigs and stuff i'm still as thankful as i was 40 years ago I, I just sang to people and made money doing it and got to entertain them and make them feel good and it just feels great i love it
1: yeah i believe it
0: so now your book the back door uh thanks for sending that to me i read it and uh that book is is specific about uh the uh, an underground i guess uh Cabaret Let me let me read what it says here on the on the uh the cover. Radio broadcaster journalist and author Coral Andrews celebrates the release of her first book, The Backdoor, a chronicle of the musicians, artists, and personalities that were part of Kitchener's underground subculture of the nineteen seventies to the nineteen nineties at the legendary backdoor bar that existed beneath the Metro restaurant. So do you wanna set that up for me and, and just tell me how that came about?
1: Well, I was a waitress upstairs. Yeah. And when I first started, it was around 1979, I guess. And disco was just going out of, you know, just going out of style. So the guy yeah. that owned the Metro, Milan Rasdek, he was running the downstairs as the backdoor dining disco, very high-end disco. First one of the first disco's in town, probably the first disco in town. He had a couple of guys that were advising him about music. Uh, from the record store Records on Wheels, which we had one in Kitchener and one in Cambridge. And these guys were great. They were saying, okay, Milan, if you want to get, you know, if you want to keep up with the business, like for Milan, it was all about entertaining, uh, you know, entertaining and making money, making sure that his customers were happy. You got to switch up the music. So all of a sudden we're playing, you know, Elvis Costello and Talking Heads and Blondie and all this kind of stuff. Before that, there was another punk bar downtown called Act One. And a lot of underage kids, this is like 1978, 77, 78. So the Sex Pistols are just, you know, they're all over England and everybody was talking about the Sex Pistols and the Clash and this and that. So a year later, it comes here. And uh, all these kids, you know, they're all really excited about this music. And not only that, the mm-hmm. style of the, you know, dressing is their favorite artists, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and so act one got, you know, it, it got busted three times for underage drinking. So it, oh. once it, you know, curtain closed, everybody shifted over to the back door because of the, you know, the music was the drawing card all the way, all the way through, like all, every incarnation of the back door of the music was the drawing card or the people down there, like whoever was DJing down there. So it was a very interesting bar because of that. And, you know, the kids that went down there, they just, it was some of these kids, they didn't belong anywhere else. You know, I was kind of like, well, I I don't want to go see, I don't want to go to the coronet and see this band or I don't, I don't, I don't fit in anywhere, but this is like a new music and a new scene. It was like a scene and there were a lot of young artists down there and writers and people that were exchanging ideas and they were all kind of, they were all inspired by the music. So I found that fascinating and there was a guy working down there Monday nights, Mad Mel Johnson, who was from Manchester. And he had okay. a friend who was, um, I guess, working at the Toronto airport and were bring in imports from England. So Mel was playing music that no one had heard of, like Joy Division and Doll by Doll and all this kind of stuff. On Monday nights, And uh, he was quite, he could be quite gloomy and moody at times. So I remember coming up to him one Monday going, Hey Mel, um, do you think you could? And I'm in my mid twenties, right? I don't know what the hell I was talking about. Um, so I go Mel, and Meland didn't like the fact that the music was cold, kind of depressing either. And so he basically he he didn't mince words. He kind of went, well, if you think you're so good, you effing do it. So yeah, that's how I got a job <laughs> DJing on Monday nights downstairs oh, as <laughs> Squeaky wow. Subversive. So
0: oh, cool. That's uh, yeah. Your nickname was Squeaky, right? Yeah. That's and I was the television. female down
1: there, so I thought, well, okay, these guys are all you know playing all these cool bands like Devo and Fat Gadget and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I got to start playing the female bands, and then I'm going to start dressing like my favorite artists, like the people that came downstairs did. They kind of inspired right. me to do that as well. So it was a a place and a time, and I don't think it can be repeated either, because a lot of people have asked me that.
0: Yeah, it was rather fortuitous. You went down there and said, hey, I can I can do this and give it a shot. Well, I wanted to ask you about the punk scene because, I mean, the punk scene in England was was really rebellious and, and really emerged out of that in London. I read Chrissy Hines' book and I didn't realize that she was right there with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and, and those yes. guys. She knew all of them and she was right in the midst of that when they were coming up. Yeah, she was. And um, so some of that got transferred to Canada, but it doesn't sound like it was quite as intense as it was in the UK.
1: Well, you know, we had people that came downstairs. If you read the book, um, there was a ah, this motley assortment called the Cattle Ranchers or slash Dune Goons. And they no. lived the punk ethic. So they like to come downstairs and kind of destroy uh, where they hung out. So the washrooms are yeah, always The targeted,
0: bathrooms, yeah. You, you did which, mention that a number of times.
1: Which really sucked. And a lot of people <laughs> yeah. I interviewed, they all remembered that. And I thought, well you know what yeah, they don't really have any reason to rebel, maybe they had nasty childhoods or something like that, but it yeah. certainly wasn't a political thing. it was more like a it was all about the the, the trend of the music and the fashion of the times um and the, yeah. and the punk ethics, so they all wanted to be you know Johnny rotten <laughs> so yeah. it was. It was something. Just being
0: rebellious, I guess, for the sake of it, or, or, I mean, what were they rebelling against? Right. Remember the, remember the rebel without a cause, right? They,
1: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, as I said in the book, I I don't think these guys had that much to rebel against. Like I said, maybe, yeah. maybe troubled childhoods, uh, but that's about it. But they were like this gang mentality and they would do ridiculous things, yeah. you know, and whenever the washrooms got trash, Milan would say, okay, that's it. I've had enough of this crap. So yeah. then it would turn into whatever he wanted to do next. And he was a huge fan of the Beatles. So at one point it was a Beatles bar called The Cavern. Jeez, and yeah. um, he there was a factory down the road that was going out of business. They had a lot of bricks sitting on the site. So Milan had somebody come down and bring all those bricks to the Metro. And he fashioned the downstairs to look like The Cavern with yes, stone pillars. Yeah, it was amazing. Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
0: So how long, how long was the punk scene there at that club? Well, the, the thing is the other thing about Chrissy Hines book that, that just completely grossed me out was that she said when, when the sex pistols would come off stage, they were completely covered in spit because people would spit on them. Right. It's
1: just uh, yeah. Gross. I don't remember anybody spitting on bands. I do remember, yes. <laughs> um, the forgotten rebels and Mickey, Mickey DeSantis played down there and he spat in the ceiling, but I don't remember a lot of people <laughs> yes. spitting. Um, well, that's was, what Chrissy
0: Hines said in your book, and then later on, when Johnny Rotten came back out, he he said he made a point of saying, "I'm not your spittoon." As he did Yeah, it, on. it was
1: pretty intense <laughs> over there, and over here. I mean, I I remember I was in I was in Toronto once. I was doing supposed to do an interview with Eric Burton. That's right, and um, he, he had to cancel it because he had a problem. Like I don't know, he wasn't feeling well. He had a sore throat or something like that. And the Sex Pistols are in Toronto the same night, and apparently they lasted on stage, eh, maybe a minute or so, because somebody spat on oh. Johnny Rotten, so he just walked oh, okay. off the stage. So yeah, there you still, go. yeah, still can't tolerate it. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: it's just, it's, just, it's just disgusting. I read it in the book, and I thought, ooh, yeah. That's, but the thing is, the punk scene, and then the other thing she said in that book that really, that really got me was there was a guitar player playing and she thought it sounded interesting. It was an interesting tuning. And so she went up to him and said to him, it's an interesting tuning. You have in your guitar? Cause Keith Richards and those guys would experiment with different kinds of tunings. Yes. And he said, well, I don't actually know how to tune it.
1: <laughs> I'm just, yes. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> he was probably just doodling, but um he was, uh, he
0: was just slamming the strings, right?
1: The, um, all, uh, the back door had two punk periods. So the, yeah, like between 1979 1981. That's when the DJs were down there playing a lot of punk okay. and new wave, yeah uh, and electronic stuff. And then in the mid 80s, um, it was taken over by this young, these young, these two young people, Jacqueline Bruner and uh, Daryl Purdy. And Daryl wasn't a band; he was a musician, a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And he looked like Nick Cave; like he had the. And they both looked. They had the look with the 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 cribbed hair, The Raven crimped hair. It was pretty wild. Wow. And they were bringing in bands from Queen Street. So oh. um, forgot uh, the not for, well, they, did they bring it? No, they didn't bring in forgotten rebels storm group and a uh, neon Rome and change of heart. And then um, all kinds of interesting bands uh, Blurt out of England with Ted Milton and then skeleton crew with Fred Frith. It became hmm. a very, like it was a kind of a fan venue. Um, yeah. A lot of music fans would go down there because those were the bands they liked to see. And some of the bands that play down there, they liked playing at smaller venues because they knew their, their fans were coming out to see them, not just somebody coming out to see their music.
0: Well, and there's a certain intensity in, in, in a smaller club where you've got some buzz and excitement, and it's kind of over full, and, and you've got uh, a real cool vibe, right? And and I guess for our listeners, especially the younger ones, but I mean, back then, the, the club scene was pretty darn vibrant, and this is a good example of that, that, the back door. And it was six nights a week, sometimes seven nights a week. Yeah, so that was a, it was an exciting time for that I, I, I'm not sure that the the intensity level like you said earlier would ever come back or we could ever sort of relive that so it was a special time
1: for sure I don't know yeah. there's a couple of like sometimes I think there's a few scenes around here that remind me of the back door because there's a place down the street called the Sugar run and it's a basement bar um, and they have a pretty cool scene going on there but not you, you don't have the people that dress as. You know, Simon Le bon from Duran Duran, or somebody from the Stray Cats, or Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Um, the yeah, people right. that came downstairs were, uh, especially in the, well, no, in the mid '80s too, they were just dressing up was just part of the whole experience. Yeah, and I mean, the girls, the women had they 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 everybody shopped at thrift stores, and then much music was happening, so people would emulate their favorite artists from a video on Much Music or an album cover. And, you know, I did the same thing, dressing as Lena Lovitch or Chrissy Hyde. I did a Pretender's Night yep. the one night and uh, Nina yep. Hagen. And yep. um, I can't remember. Oh, I, I did a Peter Gabriel night. Uh, I oh, did nice. a B-52s night. Uh, and I had you know, a B-52, like a model B-52 airplane crashing into the side of my beehive. So oh, I neat. had created people around me to help me create this. Yeah whole experience so it was <laughs> yeah yeah was the crazy. only thing
0: that the only thing that comes close to that now we do shows where we do theme nights we'll do a 60s night 70s night 80s night and we get people to dress in the appropriate clothing and and those are fun they're not quite as intense and it's called older people now and, and some of the younger people like it but they, but yeah. they do like you you make a good point because it's more participatory that way people are coming and they're they're involved in it they're, they're part of it
1: no, well, they were, I mean, there's an interview with Perrin Baker, who's a sound engineer, did some work with Peter J. Moore, the um, Cowboy Junkies Trinity Sessions. And he said, you know, you were a part, you, they, I mean, the band was the audience because it was so intense. Mm. It's such a small bar. The audience yeah. was right there with the band. <laughs> so, yeah. no, that's you know, cool. and, and it was very mm. interactive. So that was kind yeah. of fun.
0: Yeah, I know that's neat, and I've been in many of those situations where the, just the vibe is just right, and it's good. So tell me about the Cavern Club. Sorry, I, I, we were talking about earlier, brought it up, but um, that's another thing I noticed about that, and, and the club scene, because the music scene was such a shifting landscape, and then you're trying to navigate all of that. You've got, like you said, the disco was just on the wane, but you still had bands like, you know, Van Halen was still good, there was yeah. still some heavier bands that were cool, and then you got... Um, the new wave guys and and I just remember trying to navigate all that. How did you, how did you manage all that?
1: Well, Milan, like I said, he was fed up with the fed up with all the punks. So the yeah. cavern lasted for I mean it didn't last for long. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, about a year and a half, something like that. So we we're playing, you know, we we're playing the Beatles and the S- Stones and the Kings and the Pretty Things and the Who and all this kind of great mm-hmm. stuff. And we had a different, entire, different crowd that came down. And the one yeah. DJ that worked down there, Kevin, he looked a lot like John Lennon. So that kind of okay. added to the whole vibe. Then I had another friend of mine, Glenn Pelche, who is like a radio personality, does a, a songbook band called, uh, well, back then it was Sticky Fingers. Now it's Beggar's Banquet. He looked just like right. Mick Jagger. So that just kind of added to the whole you know, the whole vibe of the Cavern. So that was a lot of fun. We did trivia. I think I did trivia on Monday nights because I, I, I was DJing when it was the Cavern too. So I switched okay. from, you know, collecting all this punk and new wave stuff to collecting all these, I think I have 65 Beatle and Beatle-related albums like the Beatles Concerto wow. and all kinds of rarity, a Beatle, rare Beatles stuff. And I, I did the same with the Stones and the Kings and the Who and the Pretty Things. And then I got into... Yeah. Sandy Shaw and Dusty Springfield and Helen Shapiro and all this stuff, right? Wow. Yeah. And and that was fun. But then you know people were coming in saying, "Oh, can you play Simple Minds and stuff like that?" So the the other music was starting to creep back in. So there was we figured, well, there was a sixties, eighties thing sometimes. So Kevin would come down and play The Doors, and then he would play The Stranglers, that kind of thing. Hmm. But then okay. you know the, the the new music was bound to come back in again and so it did, but it didn't come back right away because after the cavern the the bar kind of went backwards and became a place called mannequins which was a disco again, 1983, so a lot of people that were going down to the cavern and the back door kind of went, i not going down there. I'm not into disco anymore. So that was an interesting period as well because we had mannequins downstairs.
0: Yes, you described all that in the book, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty interesting.
1: <laughs> They're sitting in my corner in the front room, actually, right now. I'm looking at them.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah. 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 Well, that's, so that's the thing is that you're chasing something that you're never going to really catch because the, the club scene was shifting. And, and then you, you know, you, you mentioned the Simple Minds or, you know, Duran Duran, but then, you know, Bon Jovi is, 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 is on the horizon too. And, and, you know, White Snake and some of these other, the, the heavier bands. And then of course, Judas Priest, I don't know. It was just such a mix.
1: It was, a, it was very eclectic back then. And then after the, after Mannequins, it became a bar called Club FM. And that was a live music venue that was run by a guy from Guelph who was actually a musician and a producer himself. And, Mm. um, he got, we, we, you know, we brought in Jane Sabri to that little tiny space. Um, and like a five piece band, but uh, I mean, she was from Guelph. So Fraser, his name was Fraser Yates. He, he knew her management, I guess. So we, you know, we brought in Ian Tamblin and, um, who else? Uh, all kinds of all kinds of like folk and more blues type acts. Yeah. When it was right. Club FM, and then Fraser wanted to do some renovations downstairs, and Milan didn't want to invest in it, so then Club FM stopped, and then the back door came mm. back. Like Milan goes, right. okay, well let's just let's just open the downstairs the way it was, and bring all the DJs back, and let's do the back door again. So that was like 1984. And then Jackie right. and Daryl came in and took over mid-1984 and started bringing in all these bands in from Queen Street and local, you know, um, alternative bands. So, again, the back door had another, like another incarnation into punk. And then it just went from there. I don't know how many incarnations it yeah. had, but well, I had Well, you a talk nickname. about them in the book. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I had a nickname for Phyllis Diller, and I didn't give it that nickname. Another journalist did, which... Well, yeah. hate hated. I went. Well, he's right. I mean, this bar has had more facelifts than Phyllis Diller. Honest to God, it it kept changing all the time. Every couple of years. At uh, First, I thought I don't know if I could write this book. And then after a while, I thought when I started doing research and finding everybody, I thought, oh yeah, I can definitely write this book. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, I discovered more and more as the process um, continued.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting as, as I say it, it. It's sort of indicative of of the times, and there were there were many probably similar situations where clubs would come and go. I remember that, and then clubs would switch around, and then so in your book, just tracking that, it's chapter twelve. You talk about mannequins and Club FM, and and you talk about Jane Sibury. and then and then there's a quote from there. You, uh, she asked you. You ran into her at a Casby Awards, and she asked you, "How's that tiny underground bar doing in Kitchener? What was it yeah. called?" So she obviously had a memorable time there.
1: She did.
0: <laughs> I interviewed her actually. I had her on my podcast, and uh, you know she was a bit different too. Like so, so what I thought the first thing that struck me about that was like bit of an odd booking, not in a negative way, but I mean she was very sort of um, genre specific, right? She was kind of yes. uh, a bit different. So how yes, did that I, go? Over?
1: I heard the I heard the interview. Actually, it was great. Um, yeah. She talked about a lot of things that. I wouldn't think she would even normally talk about, which was so hmm. you know. Congratulations to you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you know, you try to ask open ended questions and see where it goes, and and some people are pretty open, especially looking back. I mean, right? Like you're not in the scene now, so you're just kind of looking back on your life and and talking about things that 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 you experienced. Yeah. You know, and but interesting that, that she would remember that place as as something that it struck her. She couldn't remember quite remember the name, but uh but she remembered the experience, which is of course what you want in one yes. of those. Um and you mentioned her a few times. So then you so the bar kept morphing, I guess it morphed again into the re it's uh the backdoor redux, I guess that's chapter 13 when, yeah. it, when it was reinvented. But we're still talking like the timelines are so short. We're talking like a year, two years.
1: That's you know, right. When you look
0: back, it must be like, holy cow, this is went, was moving quickly.
1: Yeah. That's what I tell people if they're going to read the book. I go, enjoy the ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because when it was yeah. Club FM, Fraser also got in, ta- in contact with Mark Breslin at Yuck Yucks. So, hmm. you know, he, he had the right. first Yuck Yucks night here in town as well. Uh, wow. I, I forgot about that. But I was also writing for the Water Chronicle back then, which was – you know, weekly newspaper. And I actually covered some of these events down, downstairs. So yeah. I, I remember being down there that night. He had three, you know, three yuck, yucks comedians. And that was interesting. And then um, uh, it's Scott Merritt down there. And he also had a, a New York, he did like a little, he, I think he did three comedy nights, something like that. And then he went, he did jazz. He had a guy from New York named John Tank. Um, yeah. and that was really interesting. And then Scott Merritt came in, Brantford musician, um, who is a very, yeah. uh, he's a very famous producer these days versus Fred Eaglesmith and a whole bunch of different people. Um, and Scott has a nice memory of the door or, or the, of Club FM as well. He's good, fra- good friends with Fraser and, uh, Fraser's ro- wife Rose. So yeah, that's what I mean. Hmm. It's all connected.
0: Yeah. And then, then, uh, You know, the other thing that comes out in the book is how busy you were. Like, you know, you were, you were a writer, but you were a waitress, you were DJing. I mean, you were kind of fully involved in that place.
1: That's for sure. I mean, the upstairs, one of the only reasons I I was able to write the book because the upstairs I, you know, in the afternoons when it wasn't very busy, um, we had this, had this book called the guiding schnitzel. And at first it was going to be an autograph book, Uh, My Carla, the manager Carl Kubeck. She goes. We should have an autograph book because we're close to Center in the Square and Lulu's back then. Um, Lulu's going back then, so a lot of the artists that played at Lulu's would come to the Metro because Carl and Milan would be at Lulu's three times a week, and they would say, "Oh, we own a Schnitzel House." So you'd have Brenda Lee showing up or Martha Reeves, uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, because they were playing Center in the Square or whatever. So right. they would sign. They signed the guiding Schnitzel. But I thought, well, maybe we should. Maybe I should just write about things that are going on upstairs. At the restaurant, yeah. so I, I would do that, and then I wrote about things going on downstairs as well. So I was—that okay. was kind of a timeline um, that yeah. really helped. It was like my holy grail for writing the book, for sure. And I also had personal okay. diaries at the time, and then I was writing articles for various, um, you know, entertainment weeklies, which I thought, oh my god, I was there that night. That night that this band played the back door, so I have this yeah. in detail, so I can, you know, um, it in the book. So that was an yeah, neat interesting process.
0: Yeah, well, cool, and, and of course we encourage our listeners to to get a hold of the book. And so, chapter three, you call the guiding schnitzel, and you say it was it was named after the guiding light. So, yeah. it's the soap opera, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and that, and then you had stars sign the book. So you talk about Long John Baldry was there, and of course Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis came in there. Is that right? You um, mentioned them in the book.
1: The, um,
0: or signed the book anyway.
1: Um no, it was um oh Royal Canadian Air Force. So it was Roger Roger Abbott and um Dave Oh, what's his last name? Anyway, they came in, they were I was a closet comic. I did some stand up comedy. I decided, well, oh, you it? know what, I've seen enough comedy, I've interviewed enough comics, I could do this. <laughs> so they came in the metro to eat. Uh and uh yeah. I, they said, "Well, we're doing this. We're doing this comedy contest at the University of Waterloo. You should apply." And I went, "Okay." So I did a, a routine on waitressing with a friend of mine who waitressed at the Metro. It was ridiculous, mm-hmm. and I would never do it yeah. again. I'd rather be hit by a Mack Mac truck.
0: I love the fact that you did it. I, I took a comedy course twice, actually, and did did a stand up. And I, I realized it wasn't my thing, but I'm sure glad I did it. It was a neat learning experience.
1: It is. It's it's terrifying. It's like you don't. Yeah. Your audience is your supporting cast if you yeah. don't have somebody on stage with you. And when uh, my pal and I were doing the closet comics thing, we weren't playing off of each other. We were playing separately, um, yeah. which kind of it was bizarre. <laughs> But, so,
0: did you take any classes, or did you did you sort of practice your craft before you did it, or did did you just mm. write something and get up there and do it?
1: No, I just wrote something. We wrote something, got up there and did it, and it was about waitressing. Oh, okay. Um, and it you know was televised and everything else. And there were ten closet comics oh. that were chosen, and uh, mm. it was it was a lot mm. of fun. But I don't think I'd ever do that again.
0: <laughs> well, because when I took my class, it was from a professional comic, and then and then they help you build your routine, right? right? Like like um with Seinfeld did the comic and talks about, he got rid of all his old material and wrote all new stuff. So that made it a little less, it was still intimidating, but not quite as bad. Cause I, at least I had halfway a sense of what I was going to do. So.
1: Yeah, that's good though. <laughs>
0: yeah. It was pretty interesting. I must say, cause I was supposed to, everyone was supposed to get five minutes and she liked my routine. So I got 20 minutes, but then the second time I did it, I didn't do as well because it's a different skill. So sure. what did
1: you do your routine on?
0: Uh, mostly on my wife. Cause she, she's the, the whole thing was based on the fact she's very funny, but she doesn't try to be funny. So she says funny things, but not in a funny way. Cause she's not trying to be funny. She's trying to be serious.
1: Oh, okay. So I
0: told my wife before she came, I said, you realize half of this is about you, right? She goes, yeah, fine. Whatever. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> Well, audiences so, love that, you know, cause they can oh, relate yeah. to it. So that's good. Yeah, for sure. No, that is good. very good.
0: So the club kept morphing. So the backdoor video lounge, you talk about that in chapter 16. And then flippers, you talk about in, in chapter 17.
1: <sighs> flippers. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe that. I, I was writing for a magazine called Pulse. And I went, you know what? I, I'm to the point where I, you know, I, have, I, I feel protective of this bar now because this is yeah. how many incarnations. And I thought, we're going from a cool, like the cool, the backdoor which was so friggin' cool, to a bar called Flippers. (laughs) Give me (laughs) an effing break. I did laugh. He goes, I call it Flippers because that way nobody will confuse it with an arcade place. I went, yeah, okay, there's that. But um, he did bring some live music down, and he did do – we had poetry nights downstairs called Four Words Unspoken, and they were really interesting – Kind of a multimedia, yeah. spoken word, film, yeah. and music and again, happening. Very,
0: kind of odd, right? It's just kind of an odd. But it like, did it work for you?
1: Yeah, the the poetry nights are yeah. very popular down there, actually. And uh, Flippers, I think the fourth anniversary of Four Words Unspoken was at Flippers, so that was good. And um, I remember it being packed actually. And we had a we had Jeff Howard from Toronto who had a Fairlight CVI. who was doing special effects way back in the day. So this is pretty cool. He works for chorus now, Um, Mm. but it was kind of revolutionary that again, you couldn't repeat anything that could never be repeated. That was like one, a time (laughs) and a place. Um, So, and I mean, flippers didn't last long either. I'm not even sure why, but acid test played down there when, um, you know, they're from the, I think their, their song, Mr. Skin is in roadkill. If I'm not mistaken. The Bruce McDonald movie, and um, yeah, yeah. Steve Fall played down there and he goes, I re-, and I've interviewed him because he's in a new band called On. He goes, I remember that bar, Coral. It's a little tiny barn or a schnitzel house. And I went, oh my God, <laughs> yeah, that's the bar. Uh, so, so that how, was how kind many people of interesting. Did it, Sorry,
0: How many people did it hold? Well, I, I was curious because I, I don't think you said in the book how many people it actually held.
1: If there if were 40 people down there. It looked full. But I can tell oh, you the really? night the Forgotten Rebels played down there, it was way past capacity. People were lined yeah. up the stairway out to the parking lot, for God's sake. Wow. It was insane <laughs> in funny. there that night.
0: And then I thought it was funny. Flippers, a bar with a porpoise.
1: <laughs> it was the worst logo I've ever <laughs> seen in my entire life. I went... Milan, you lost your goddamn mind. No, no, no. He's, you know, this guy, he, you know, Milan didn't care. He didn't care about the bar because he was too busy. His daughter was becoming a, you know, a a champion freestyle skier. So he wasn't even around that much. So he's going, well, he has good ideas. He's a good business mind. And I'm going to let him have a chance at the bar. And I went, okay, okay, flippers. And then uh, apparently there was another bar in town called Dolphins, but I never, you know what? I did oh. research on it and I never found it. So okay. I don't know. <laughs> but um, Flippers didn't last that long either. Maybe no, a year it and a half. Like it Something yeah. like that. And then the,
0: so the bar morphed again, but then you talk about in the next chapter at Vines. So it was jazz and blues. And then you talk about Ed the Sock. Oh yeah, I brought Ed
1: the Sock down there. But just going back to Flippers for a minute. Yeah. Um, Danny Michelle played down there with his band the hmm. rhinos so he was down there on hmm. a regular basis like a house band and milan's oh. son had the bar for a while too um in all ages like it was an all ages not you know no alcohol bar and so okay. danny's band the rhinos played down there all the time so that's danny michelle and rob carley you know danny michelle plays all across canada now but some of his first gigs were at the back door and the same with rob oh. carley who now is a you know Award-winning film score guy does the does the music for Murdoch Mysteries. So that was kind of cool. But then, yeah. yeah, after Flippers, we went to Vines. And that was interesting, too, because um, the guy running Vines, he was a real character, but he's originally from Toronto. They used to go to Grossman's, and they used to see jazz musicians there. All the checks would go there. And so you know he started bringing people down to the bar. He met a couple of jazz musicians here, and they advised him who he should bring downstairs. And when I was doing my research, I found out that we had some really great players playing down there that I didn't I didn't even realize had played down there, that yeah. are veterans in this area and still play yeah. today.
0: Huh. Well, it's a gig for them, but just jazz and blues. I thought, well, that that's really a departure, right? That's that was probably quite different than what had preceded it.
1: And then um, Ed the Sock was a one-off. That was, again, Peter Jacobs, my okay. pal that was promoting um, Eric Burden and people like yeah. that doing the Beatles stuff. And uh, so he's, I said, Well else do you have on your roster? He went, I have Ed the Sock. I went, Ed the Sock? He goes, do you know who he is? And I went, yeah, I do. So we <laughs> brought him down for one night, and uh, George uh, from Vine said, oh, yeah, I remember night Sock was there. Like there was 10 people there, if that, because we were charging 15 bucks a ticket. Okay. So, and, you know, he, we had him down behind a couch. And um, by the end of the night, there were no women left at all. Uh, And then he came back. uh, Ed came and did my late night radio show with me. And that was even worse. Like I was on CKW. I was doing a Portal FM on CKWR. Uh, and he came to be my guest till 3 a.m in the morning so that was pretty hilarious yeah. but that was a one-off like then yeah. it went back to jazz bar after that so
0: so it was too so you say in the book though it was too lewd and crude like it just uh, he was oh. just too off the just oh yeah too brutal oh yeah yeah <laughs> Which is a bit odd because, I mean, you know, back in the day, there'd be, you know, there was all kinds of odd stuff, you know, male strippers and bears you dare and all these stupid, you know, and, and comedians that were just like Andrew Dice Clay type of yep. comedians who were just brutal, like, just like, holy cow. Okay. There is a limit. And you just passed that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah uh, You know, I, I mean, Ed came up for, his real name is Steve Kirshner. And he came up with his road manager. I'm not sure who she was, but anyway, they came up for dinner. Um, before we went downstairs and we had a discussion and I said, you know, you should really think about, you know, going to England. Maybe you could be on top of the pops or some, you know, music yeah. show, whatever. And I, and he says, well, you know, I, once I put that sock in my hand, I'm not responsible for anything I say. And I'm like, okay, that's not going <laughs> to work. <laughs> that's not well, going to yeah. primetime TV. No. Forget it. But now he's on much, he's got Ed Nation or something. I don't even know. Oh, okay. At the well, Nation. I mean, he was
0: on Much Music. He certainly wasn't. He was hilarious. I mean, I've got oh, yeah. some of those. Some of the, when he did the video, what was it? M- Much Fromage. Remember oh, he yeah. did uh, Fromage?
1: Yeah. He's <laughs> like, always been a you know a, a satirist. And he started off on oh, cable TV years ago hilarious. in Toronto.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you a few more things. Uh, thanks for going through your book there. I encourage people to buy it and read it. It, it is specific to The Back Door, but it's it's also you know general in, in the, the way that you, you do track very well how the music scene was shifting and how you were trying to adjust to that. And, and of course, all the episodes and, and the rampage that went along with that at certain times. So it's it's cool. I, I would recommend that people get your book and have a read. It would be interesting for them. Thank you. Yeah. And then, so what's the funniest thing, maybe the funniest thing that ever happened to you or the strangest thing that you ever wrote about?
1: Uh, Oh, that's hard. Well, there's always
0: things that come up in life, right? Some things are super funny. Some things are super odd. Other things are kind of sad. Did you ever get caught up in the, in the partying scene yourself?
1: Um, yeah. (laughs) If you read the, the chapter on Tracy, Uh, my pal Tracy Jackson, we were the slum sisters. So um, we were, I don't think anybody ever got a paycheck downstairs because it was either you get paid or you drink for free. So we all drank for free. Um, And so I, you know, sometimes I I wake up the next day and I'm like, "Uh, okay, I would, I'd be in a restaurant. I I wouldn't remember stuff. Like I I remember I ran into a restaurant over a little while ago and he goes, remember coming down to see us for crepes all the time? And I went, No, oh my God, no, I don't remember that at all, which is really bad. But I'm I'm trying to think of something. Well, it's
0: funny because we had a we had a club owner that used to like he thought if the band was partying, everybody else would be partying. So he would call the band to the bar before. I haven't drank for years. I mean, it'll be this year. I think it'll be 30 years since I drank. But back then, you just got into the habit of drinking. And I mean, he would have water glasses full of B52s, like a literal water glass. I'm like, well, Steve, I can't, you know. That's a water glass, man. You because can't. I got
1: cases of this stuff. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> you can't I'm function. Sure. But I mean, like oh no. Tracy and I would be drinking, you know, wine from the down, like then the bar downstairs didn't stock that much stuff. So we would be borrowing wine from upstairs. And there was a liquor store where I lived. So we would be replacing wine and vodka all the time. <laughs> because everybody, yeah. like I said, like a lot of the memories in the book are probably skewed. Or blurry because everybody was drinking and partying back then. So some people I interviewed go, "Oh my god, I I don't remember anything. That's terrible." And then about three months later, "Oh yeah, I remember a night we did this." So it was like that. Everybody, you know, um, yeah, we we're all we were all drinking and partying a lot. We were young, so yeah. that's the excuse I have. But I, no. I'm still trying to I'm trying to think of something difficult or something. I I don't know. I have to, I've well, let me so ask you this way:
0: If you uh, looking back, is there anything you would change? Is there any decisions that you made, or anything that you did that you might do differently if you could do it again?
1: Um, there was a piece I wrote for Harrow Smith Magazine. One of the first pieces I wrote. It was in 1978 on a blacksmith in St. Jacobs named John Martin, and I wrote this. I guess it was not the style of the magazine, but I provided him with all this copy. So when the article came out with my name on it, I was horrified because I thought this isn't like anything I wrote at all. It has some of the facts mm. that I provided and that's it. So I learned yeah. a hard lesson about, you know, uh, matching the matching your copy to the editorial psychology of the publication. So right. I would go back and rewrite that. Actually, I did write I am writing a story. I did write a story about St. Jacob's called Road Trip to St. Jacob's, which is Hmm. Uh, in the online version of harrow smith i think so yeah. i i did kind of go back and kind of remedy that a little bit but it's a it's not about a blacksmith it's sort of a more general story about st jacobs and because i i do write arts and entertainment but i also do a lot of feature stories as well which is yeah. you know, keeps you hopping like you always want to be learning right so
0: yeah. That's what well, that's cool. And that comes out in the book and then going through your website and stuff, which is, is very well done and, and quite extensive. And you're still very active. You're still doing lots of stuff. You've got your afternoon show and then yes. you said you did the show on Saturday mornings and you're still writing and you're, and you guess you're a, a wealth of knowledge in, in some measure, as we said earlier. So you're still active?
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And so, um, any more writing in the in the offing? Just doing the articles, and and uh, you've got stuff available on your website as well, if people want to check that out and they can see what you're what you're writing about these days and what you're involved in.
1: I just wrote a blog for SoCan SoCon the so, SoCan nice. blog um, yeah. through Howard Druckman about the live music scene here in KW, yeah. and it is you know basically it's kind of vaulted itself back to life after covid because a lot of musicians are worried like what's going to happen like yeah. are, are people even going to come out and see us anymore and, and they were so worried because back then i was doing radio during covid and basically i was telling everybody what they couldn't do and yeah. then the one day i did an interview with mike mckenna from mckenna's and you know mainline mckenna and mainline and he's going no coral it's live music is going to come back and this is in 2020 in the you know right in the midst of all of this he goes live music is going to come back and not only that people are going to pay more for it because they're going to appreciate it because they miss these artists so much yeah and that and he and every other man every other musician was going oh my god what are we going to do what are we going to do they were so worried but not mckenna he and he was right like around here there's all kinds of live music venues that are happening some are reopening Mm -hmm. again that you know uh, which is kind of exciting as well so I think, I don't think live music, I think it was just resting for a while. I think it's reinvented itself. And I don't think the experience of live music is going away anytime soon. Like people go, oh, people want to watch stuff on screen and this and that. I go, I don't care. You can't get, if you, there's kind of a, between the actor and the audience, doesn't matter if it's live theater or live music, there's an energy, there's a magic. You probably experienced it that you don't experience anywhere else. So I think that's why live entertainment will always thrive.
0: Well, you know, I've been a professional entertainer musician for over 40 years and and I knew I I wasn't worried about COVID. I knew it would come back and I'm busier now than I've ever been. And and things came roaring back. I knew they would anyway, so I was never worried about it. I wasn't one of the naysayers, but um, it certainly is is back and I'm as busy as I've ever been. And it's great. So I'm thankful.
1: Yeah, that is great. That is so good. So awesome.
0: Well, great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about that. We hit on a lot of different topics, but that's uh, indicative of where you're at and, and your sort of varied tastes and, and your eclectic background and stuff, which is super cool. So you have a lot to offer and, and the book is cool too. So I'd encourage my listeners to check it out. Coral Andrews, very cool.
1: Thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time.
0: Many thanks to Coral Andrews for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her incredible experiences in the music business. And more information is available at coralandrews.ca. And then she's active on Facebook, too, with The Afternoon Drive and The Back Door as well, which is the book, which was the name of the club. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Disks Radio tuesdays and thursdays to hear music from the canadian artists that you're hearing on this show so until next time i'm dan henry